Now, have you ever come across something that's good in theory, but a lot harder in practice and a lot less good in practice? How about this one? A camping holiday. You get that idea? You know that one? Uh, you know, you get the idea in your head, don't you? Back to nature, uh, fresh air until you get there and, you know, the, the tent is cold and damp and there's a hole in that lets the, the wind in. And worst of all, uh, there's no Wi-Fi. Uh, so you can't even go on the internet and uh, find out what's going on. Or what about when your favourite book becomes a film or a series? You ever had that sort of situation? You think this is going to be a brilliant, this is going to be amazing. They've picked up this series that I've loved for so long. And then when they make it, it's a bit rubbish, isn't it? And no one else can now make it because they've just done one recently. Or what, last example, last example, fruit teas. You come across those. My old pastor uh, back in Lancaster used to call them disappointment in a cup. Because in theory, they sound amazing, don't they? You know, cinnamon and apple, or, uh, you know, rose flower and, and pineapple. I don't know, you know, I don't really drink a lot of fruit teas. But then when you actually get them in practice, they're really, they all sort of taste a bit the same, don't they? You have to sort of leave the bag in there for about half an hour before it even tastes like anything. But this morning, I want to pick up on something that is even harder in practice, uh, even though it sounds great in theory. That verse there in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? In, in theory, it sounds so inspirational, doesn't it? Yeah, no judgment, just love. This is what our world needs. Until there's actually a situation where we need to do that. This is usually what goes on in my head when I look at this verse. I either convince myself that it doesn't apply to me because I have no enemies. I don't have really any persecutors compared with what's going on in the world. So I don't really need to look at this verse. It doesn't really apply to me. Or I convince myself that the person who has hurt me has treated me so badly that God couldn't possibly mean for me to apply this verse in this particular situation. I do both, actually. I sort of flip between the two. I don't know whether you associate with one or the other. But we do have enemies. We just don't call them that because it makes us sound a bit like we're psychos, doesn't it? Or we're in some James Bond film. You know what I mean? You know, my enemies contacted me from their lair yesterday and they have hatched a plan for my destruction. That's how we normally use enemies, isn't it? We think of it as sort of action films. But what if we worded it like this instead? People who have hurt me emotionally or physically. People who have let me down in a big way. People who've betrayed me, people who've lied to me, people who've told lies about me, people I no longer speak to, people who I've ghosted or have ghosted me. That's when you shut off all communication without telling the other person why. People who pretend to like me, people who look down on me for my Christian faith, people who look down on me for other reasons, people who sneeringly mock the things of God people who make fun of me behind my back. I bet when we break it down like that, we begin to see that there are actually people in this category, people that we have known in life, people that we know now. This is not an empty category. It's not an empty command that we don't have to apply. So as we engage with the people around us and the world around us, that's where this passage now in Romans 12 is going. As we engage with, even with people in church, we will pick up 
let's not say enemies, like I said, that sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But let's say baggage. We'll pick up baggage with people. And Paul here is telling us what to do with that baggage. How we're to treat those people who have brought us hurt and pain in some way. Now I'm aware this morning that we may be touching some very raw nerves. We're broken people in a broken world. And when you start to scratch the surface, you see that actually many of us, all of us really, have baggage that we may have been carrying, some of us, for a very long time. There are things that have happened to us in our past that perhaps no one or few people know about, and we carry those hurt feelings with us. So I do want to say, if you want to pray afterwards, I'm going to be around afterwards outside, just tap me on the shoulder, and I can come and pray with you about these things, or find someone that you trust to pray with, because these are very big issues that we're looking at this morning. I've got three points of what he tells us to do with this baggage that we carry. The first one is refuse retaliation. Refuse retaliation. This is verses 17 and 19. I'll read them to us again. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honourable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, originally, I had this title as Refuse Revenge. But again, I think actually that's one of those words that we all know that that's wrong. So none of us think really that we're ever taking revenge. We carefully word it to sound different, don't we? We think things instead like, I'm just treating them the way they've treated me. Or I'm just doing what anyone else would do in this situation. Or we start to think, well, see how they like it when someone treats them like this. It's not about revenge. It's about justice. We justify our thoughts and our actions towards other people in these ways, don't we? We think it's about justice, but what Paul wants to tell us in this passage here is that justice is not our individual domain. In trying to administer justice as individuals, we cast ourselves as the judge. That's what we're doing. We make ourselves the judge. But we already have a heavenly judge. God and we already have earthly judges instituted by God but you'll have to wait until chapter 13 uh, to hear about them. We call it justice but actually we're not qualified to administer justice. We're not qualified to decide who's in the right and who's in the wrong because actually we're biased aren't we? Our hearts are tainted by sin, they're faulty. So think about the sad case like a, a relationship breakup. If you speak to one side in a relationship breakup, whose fault is it, generally, to start with, certainly? Well, generally, it's the other person's fault, isn't it? They never listened. They didn't pay attention. They mistreated me. But if you speak to the other side, whose fault is it? It's the other side. They never respected me. They never had time for me. They neglected my needs. Now, are either side qualified to administer justice? are either side detached enough to be able to know what actually happened. Yet both sides call out for justice, don't they? They want us to, to go along with them. They want us to agree with them that it's all the other person's fault. They say hateful words about each other. They, some even go as far as things like slashing tires and trashing clothes. But generally, a few years down the line, they realize actually both of them are generally at fault. Not always, but often. 
You see, our hearts and our consciences are broken. Sometimes we believe ourselves to be innocent victims. And sometimes we are, but probably not as often as we think. I can think of times in my life when I've been indignant at people. How dare they speak to me like that? But when I look back years later, I start to realise actually that I bear part of the blame for what was happening. But sometimes I go to the other extreme. Sometimes we believe, don't we, that we're the only one at fault. We beat ourselves up about things that we've said, things that we've done. When actually the blame does not wholly lie with us. And it's worth remembering too that when we beat ourselves up, we're still taking that role of judge. We're still trying to be the ones who are administering justice, even if it's justice in ourselves. But that is not our place. Instead, in verse 19, we are to leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God is the one who is to administer justice. God is the one who will decide who is in the right and who is in the wrong. And unlike us, God is not biased. Unlike us, God has all the information that he needs to be able to make a right judgment. So we're to entrust our judgment to God. And in doing so, we follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see on the back of your notice sheet, there's 1 Peter 2, 23. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. This is talking about Jesus. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Jesus do when he was abused, persecuted, mistreated? He prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. I imagine that was not an easy thing to pray. I imagine it was hard to hang there on the cross, paying the price for sin for people who had put you there. But he didn't retaliate. Jesus tells us he could have called down 12 legions of angels. Legions are armies, aren't they? He could have destroyed the soldiers, nailing him to the cross. And instead, he prays for them. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Who would do such a thing? It's incredible, isn't it? So as Paul speaks here, he's really only echoing what Jesus did and also what Jesus said. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 44, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How are we sons of our Father when we do that? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, revenge, vengeance feels natural, doesn't it, in the moment. It feels like that's all that we want to do. And it is natural in one sense. That's what we feel in ourselves. But forgiveness is supernatural. It takes supernatural strength. But it's a strength that God supplies if you ask him. It may take time. These are difficult things we're talking about, aren't we? But in time, we can come to refuse revenge, refuse retaliation. And do you notice as well, the world is watching as we do. If you look at the second half of uh, verse 17, but give thought to what is honourable in the sight of all. Seems a bit out of place, doesn't it? 
But what it means is that the world is watching. There are broader applications, but certainly here, the world is watching about whether we'll fight or whether we'll forgive, whether we'll seek revenge or whether we'll seek reconciliation. It's very rare these days that Christians make the national headlines for positive reasons, isn't it? But have you noticed that when we do, it's generally for situations like this? So Neville Lawrence, whose son Stephen Lawrence was brutally murdered in a racially motivated attack, forgave the killers. And it was headline news on the BBC when he did. Joe Pollard from a church just down the road in Bailden forgave her attackers who beat her and murdered her husband while they were delivering Bibles to Eastern Europe uh, a good 30 years ago. She was voted Britain's bravest woman in a secular women's magazine. And it was headline news at the time from many different media outlets. You see, the world looks at things like church-run food banks and is grateful. It looks at poverty relief overseas and it's generally pleased. But it looks at situations like this in a sort of awe. A confused, not quite getting it or, but all nonetheless. How could they do that? How could they forgive the person who's killed their partner or their son? How could they forgive someone who's done something so awful to them? This is something that's held in honour by even the world. It's so amazing. Most things Christians do to the world, they're, they're a bit meh. You know, they sort of go, well, okay, wonderful. But this is something honourable to all. Literally, the word honourable there is beautiful. This is something beautiful to all. So refuse retaliation. That's the first thing we're to do as we engage with the world around us. The second thing we're to do is to pursue peace. Let me read to you verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You see, these verses don't stop at ceasefire, you know, not taking revenge. They move on to peace. Live peaceably with all. Now, this is another one of those verses, isn't it, that sounds great in theory, but is much harder in practice. We must actually do something that makes towards peace. Now, this verse is not unreasonable. It doesn't ask us to do the impossible. We're to seek peace as far as it depends on us. We cannot make the other person do likewise, nor does it ask us to. We're not responsible for the person's reaction, but we are responsible for our own. There are two reasons why this is hard, though. Number one, the peace includes those who have done us harm. So it's not just saying, uh, you know, uh, be nice to your neighbours, though that is probably wise. It's sandwiched in the middle of these verses about not taking revenge. It's supposed to be read in that context. So don't go and annoy your neighbours. That's probably intensely try and live at peace with the people around you. But here, really, it's taking it further. It's saying seek to make peace with your enemies. Not just don't take revenge on them, but actually seek to live in peace with them. And this is something that gets missed by Christians, I think, if I'm honest. We take the route of avoidance, generally, rather than peace. Avoidance is easier, but it's not really peace. So often I've seen this over the years. Two people hurt each other. They don't take revenge. But instead of forgiving one another and resolving the issue between them, 
They just start to avoid each other. On many occasions, even when Christians fall out, this is what happens. Often one of them goes to the extent of leaving the church and going elsewhere so that they can avoid each other. And I can understand that sort of feeling. I've been tempted by those sorts of things myself in the past when I've fallen out with people. But it's not really seeking to live at peace. That's just avoidance of the other person. Avoidance is easy, but peace is costly. And that's the second reason why this is hard. Peace will involve sacrifices for the good of people who are not seeking our good. I'll say that again. Peace will involve sacrifices for the good of people who are not seeking our good. Striving to live at peace means actually we need to lay down some of our rights. The right to justice now, for example. Sometimes in situations we just need to forgive and move on. And that is hard. That is incredibly hard sometimes, especially when we've been badly hurt. We need to give up the right to be seen to be right sometimes as well. It's really easy to say, isn't it? I'll pursue peace as long as everybody knows it wasn't my fault. Yeah, you've been in that situation. But sometimes that's not possible. And sometimes we just need to let go of that for the sake of peace. We also need to give up sometimes the right to self-pity. We can't pursue peace while we're wallowing in self-pity. Poor me. Look at what they did to me. We need to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly and move on. It also means sometimes that we need to take a step outside of our comfort zone to be the one who holds out the olive branch. And that also means being the one who risks having the olive branch thrown back in our faces. But we're only asked to do this so far as it depends on us. And elsewhere, there's a blessing associated with it. Again, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And as Jesus says that, we must remember that he was the ultimate peacemaker. He really did seek to live at peace. And he himself paid the price for peace. Colossians 1.20 says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. Think about it. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies to make peace. Not just to avoid them, but to make them his friends. To bring them in, even into his family. If he was prepared to do that for us, should we not be prepared to do that for others? Well, that brings us nicely to the last thing we have to do with the world around us. Conquer with kindness. Conquer with kindness. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. I'll read them to you again. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see here that God's call goes even further to Christians here? Not just to forego revenge, not just to be at peace with people, but to actively do good to those who have done us harm. Again, Jesus talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 39 to 41. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Do you see that there? Give him your cloak as well. Help him carry things for another mile. Or here in the passage, feed him when he's hungry. Give him drink when he's thirsty. And whilst you might think that Jesus and Paul's teaching is quite radical, it sounds very radical, doesn't it, and different. It's actually a quote from the Old Testament that we've got here, from the book of Proverbs. It's not a new idea that that Paul is is showing us here or that Jesus was showing us, but it is a life-changing one, isn't it? Who would think of doing good to their enemy? It's almost laughable, isn't it? I know someone who tried this when they were at school. They were being punched and hit. And instead of fighting back with the bullies, they said, thank you. The people who were hitting them stopped, mostly out of confusion, uh, I think, and said something along the lines of, you're puddled, you are. We're hurting you. You're not supposed to say thank you. And then walked away. They stopped the punching after that because it just was a bit weird. Now, I can't always promise you a good outcome like that, but this is still what we're called to do. And by doing so, we heap burning coals on their head. Now, I've had fun with this verse this week. I've always wondered a little bit about exactly what this verse means. Because it does sound a little bit like you're sort of doing them harm, doesn't it? And some have argued, mostly modern commentators, that this is looking forward to future judgment. As though each act of kindness in response to their unkindness sort of adds another coal to their head in judgment. But if you think about it, that hardly really fits with the the thrust of the passage, does it? The tone of the passage in what it's calling us to do. We're to love our enemies, not to pretend to love them so that they get more judgment in the end. That would be the sort of hypocritical love that we were warned about in the previous section from verses 9 to 13. Just pretending to love them to get even with them later on. No, the coals we're to heap on their heads are the coals of ashes and ashes of repentance. Martin Luther, the reformer, saw this with clarity. He said in a lecture on Romans, Blessed Augustine writes, We must understand this saying in the following way. We should induce a man who has done us harm to repent of what he did. And in this way, we shall do him good. And then Luther adds this. And this is the only way to convert anyone, to show them love and kindness. Yes, we need to tell them the gospel. Yes, we need to tell them of their sin and their need of a saviour. But here is a powerful witness. Show them love. Show them kindness. Even when they've hurt you, show them care and compassion. And in doing so, we overcome evil with good. We conquer with kindness. You see, it's no good, friends, is it, to overcome evil with evil. Strike them down. Let them burn. Paul writes in another letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's what we're to do. 
We're to conquer with kindness as Christians. I saw online a friend of mine being accused of lying on his blog this week. Here's an abridged and censored version of what a church-going accuser wrote in response. He said, you stupid, stupid, evil, insert expletive. It is you who have caused these problems. You who call yourself a Christian, who is lying to us about your so-called faith. You who is destined for hell and taking thousands with you, you ignorant piece of dung. Now this man clearly thought that my friend was his enemy, his opponent. But he was not gentle or kind. He did not try and conquer him with kindness. Now here's the question. How should my friend respond to that? Retaliate? Treat him the way he's been treated? Do what everyone else would do in this situation? Give him as good as he gets? We know the answer, don't we? He should reply with grace. Giving him a kind response that they don't deserve. Conquering with kindness. But it's hard, isn't it? In those sorts of situations, we get riled, don't we? We find it difficult. It's hard to refuse retaliation, to pursue peace, to conquer with kindness. Because in the moments there, we're hurting. Because often we are in the right. So why do we show them grace? Well, we need to remember, don't we, that God has shown us grace. When we're struggling in those situations, we need to remember how God has treated us. That he has given us that kind response that we don't deserve. Luther goes on to say in that same lecture, Thus also God converts those whom he converts by showing them his goodness. God gave his only begotten son for us, his enemies, in order to kindle in us a great love for him and in order to arouse a great hatred in our sinful, for our sinful selves. God shows us undeserved kindness in Christ. You see, if it becomes about whether our enemies deserve our kindness, we put ourselves in a very awkward position with God, don't we? Because God has shown us kindness when we didn't deserve it. So we need to remember that when we're finding ourselves in a hard place, when we're finding it hard in practice. We need to remember that we're only doing what God has done for us, what Christ did as he lived a life fully pleasing to his father. So let's pray that God would give us the strength to entrust all our judgments, all our justice to him and love our enemies. Let's pray. Father God, we find this hard. We confess, Father, that as, as human beings, this is so tough for us, Father, to forgive, to not take revenge, to pursue peace. Father, give us the strength that we need, that supernatural energy, Father, to forgive those who have hurt us, and Father has done us wrong. Give us ongoing strength to do that, Father. Help us to remember in those difficult moments that you have treated us with kindness and that you have forgiven us. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.